Well, good morning, church. So last week, we celebrated Pentecost together, and we confirmed and baptized several of our, all of our confirmands. However, the Christian holy days are not over yet, because today is Trinity Sunday. And traditionally, Trinity Sunday is celebrated the first Sunday after Pentecost, so we are keeping with that tradition, and today we will remember and reflect upon the Trinity. Now, something I'm not going to do this morning is attempt to explain the Trinity, because... I don't want to accidentally say anything heretical this morning, so or anytime. But something I will do this morning is I do want to talk about the mystery of the Holy Trinity, but also our response to the triune God. And so the Trinity is a divine mystery, and we have faith that God has revealed this to has revealed this to us. And we profess that. We profess this divine mystery of the Holy Trinity in the Nicene Creed that we profess this morning. So this year, the lectionary passage for Trinity Sunday is really a perfect passage for, for this Sunday because we are going to be in Matthew 28, 16 through 20, which is the Great Commission. And within the Great Commission, Christ gives his disciples the baptismal liturgy where he calls his disciples to baptize all people in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But before we get into the Great Commission, I briefly want to orient us within Matthew's Gospel. So at this point, at the beginning of chapter 28, Matthew moves very quickly. The Gospel writer moves very quickly from the resurrection to the Great Commission. And so at the beginning of chapter 28, we begin with the resurrection. The women, some of Jesus' female disciples, are going to the tomb, are, are going to the tomb after the Sabbath, and there's a violent earthquake, an angel comes down from heaven, rolls away the tombstone, sits on it, and tells the women, do not be afraid. Go and tell the disciples that he is risen, and Christ will meet them in Galilee. And so the women are hurrying away to go tell the disciples this good news. And on their way, they encounter the risen Christ. And upon seeing him, they fall to their knees, clasp his feet, and, and worship him. And Jesus tells them the same thing. Christ tells them, go to the disciples to share the good news and meet me in Galilee. The women are obedient to what Jesus tells them to do. And now we get to our gospel reading for this morning. So church, hear the word of the Lord. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Church, will you pray with me? Almighty God, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, for the glory of God the Father Almighty. Amen. 
So upon hearing that Jesus is going to meet them in Galilee, the 11 disciples, because Judas is no longer with them at this point, the 11 disciples immediately go to Galilee. They don't know what to expect. They don't know what's going to happen. All they know is that they're going to see Jesus there. They're going to see their risen Lord there. And it's important to remember that these 11 disciples have spent the past few years learning from Jesus through his words, through his actions, through his parables. They've been living with him, walking with him, traveling with him, watching the way that he does things. They know Jesus intimately. And as a quick aside, the mountaintop setting that the Great Commission occurs on frames the entire scene because there are numerous examples throughout scripture of people being commissioned on mountaintops. And one of the things that comes to mind immediately is God giving Moses the laws and the commandments on Mount Sinai. So this commissioning type scene, the scenery of the mountain, would have given the audience, the original audience, a framework for the Great Commission that's about to occur later in this passage. So when the disciples see Jesus approaching, some worshiped him and some doubt. So the word doubt that's used here, it could be better translated as there was some uncertainty or there was some hesitation. Now this doubt isn't necessarily a bad thing or unredeemable. Although this gospel writer, the writer of the Gospel of Matthew, doesn't detail a whole lot of encounters that the, that the disciples have with the risen Lord before he ascends, some of the other gospel writers do. And in some of those stories in the other Gospels, there were examples of some of the disciples doubting, but they didn't stay in the doubt. Instead, they moved on to full belief in Christ, that Christ had risen in the flesh, and they went out and spread the Gospel. So even though some doubted, they didn't stay there. They fully believed after seeing him. But more importantly, it's the fact that most of the disciples saw Jesus and worshipped him. The word worship that's used here suggests that they prostrated themselves before him and paid reverent worship to Christ as the divine Lord. The fact that they worship him implies that Christ is fully divine. Now, when Christ finally gets to the disciples, he tells them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Through this simple yet powerful statement, Christ communicates and asserts that he is the sovereign, supreme Lord over all of heaven and all of earth. Now, Jesus did have authority before the crucifixion and resurrection by the power of the Holy Spirit. However, now he has all authority in heaven, in heaven and on earth, and he could resume using his divine power. Furthermore, since Jesus has all authority on heaven and on earth, the mission has expanded to all the nations all authority, all the nations. Now, it's also important to note how this contrasts with one of the temptations that Jesus faced earlier in the Gospel of Matthew. Back in Matthew 4, Jesus is tempted three times by Satan in the desert. And the third temptation that Satan offers up to him is, if you worship me, then I will give you all the kingdoms on earth. Jesus resists this temptation. And after the crucifixion and resurrection, he's given all authority in heaven and on earth. What Satan offered was fake and partial. What Jesus received is all-encompassing. It includes all of heaven, all of earth, 
all people, and all of creation. Jesus is Lord, and he has authority over each and every one of us. After asserting his divine authority as Lord over heaven and earth, Jesus then commissions his disciples. And by commissioning them, he communicates to them how they are to respond as disciples and and servants of Christ. And so he says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Now, there's a whole lot of stuff packed into this sentence or to these sentences. We have four different verbs. We have go, we have make disciples, we have baptize, and we have teach. However, not all of these verbs have the same weight. There's only one main verb, and that verb is make disciples. All of the other verbs surrounding it are supporting verbs. Go, baptize, and teach are all verbs that are designed to tell the disciples, this is how you make disciples. These are the things that you must do, the means by which you are called to disciple other people for Christ, so that they become disciples of Christ. So first, go to the nations. At this point in time, it was common for Jewish people in other nations to make converts to Judaism. However, it was less common for those converts to go on to become disciples of rabbis. So when Jesus expands the mission to all the nations, he's not just calling for converts who say and maybe happen to to do the right thing. He's calling for real disciples who desire and have relationship with God, who fully belong to God in thought and word and mind and deed. Their whole selves belong to God alone. And that's what Jesus is calling for. It's not enough to simply convert, to check off some boxes, to get some brownie points in heaven. That's not what we're supposed to do. We're called to truly disciple and walk alongside people because discipleship is a lifelong journey. Second, the disciples are called to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The baptismal liturgy that Christ gives here reveals the Trinity to us. The writer uses the singular form of the word name. And that reveals the unity of the three persons of the Trinity. He didn't use names. He didn't use the plural. So they're not three gods. There's three persons, one God. The unity of the Trinity, one God. Furthermore, Jesus declares his own divinity in this baptismal liturgy because he includes himself, the Son, within it. So Christ declares his divinity. But baptism is more than just the cleansing of sins or us choosing God. In baptism, God is the primary actor. In baptism, God invites and initiates us into communion and community with God and God's people, the kingdom of God. And because God initiates us into this community, we now belong to the triune God. Baptism is the sacrament of initiation into belonging to God. Third, the disciples are called to teach all that Christ commanded. We don't get to pick and choose which commandments we teach. We are called to teach them all that Christ commanded. Recall that Christ didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. He came to fulfill it. And the intention 
of all of those laws and commandments that we see in the Old Testament through the prophets and the law, all of those, the intention of those were to show people how to love God and love neighbor, to set them apart from the other nations and make them a holy nation because God himself is holy. So this can seem like an overwhelming and impossible task. However, the fact that this is an impossible and overwhelming task when, try, when trying to do it by ourselves points us right back to the triune God because we have to depend on the triune God to fulfill the commandments that Christ gives us because we will always fall short. So we must entrust ourselves to Christ by receiving him as our Lord trusting that he intercedes for us at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and has atoned for our sins, and believe that God the Father and God the Son have sent us the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, who convicts us of our need for Christ, our need for forgiveness, and helps us to grow in holiness, to sanctify us. And so after Christ gives this great commission to his disciples, Christ reassures them that he will be with them to the end of the age. This reassurance not only provides comfort to the disciples and future disciples that Christ is with them, this reassurance also does two other important things. First, because Christ is going to be with them always, he reassures them that he is going to equip and empower them to fulfill this great commission that he's given them. Christ has not abandoned them to figure out how to fulfill this commission on their own. He's going to equip and a power, empower them. Second, it also implicitly says that Christ is divine. His divinity is asserted once again because it echoes the importance of Jesus' name, Emmanuel, God with us. God is with us through Christ. In Jewish literature at the time, only God is called omnipotent. So the fact that God is always with us, implicitly reveals that he is God and fully divine. Christ is with us to the end of the age. And he provides the Holy Spirit to walk alongside us and to seal us in community with God. And so, brothers and sisters, on this Trinity Sunday, something I really want to emphasize is that the Trinity is not an intangible theological concept created by theologians to confuse us. That's not the point of it. That's not the point of who God is. Although the Trinity is a divine mystery that our human minds can't fully comprehend, this doesn't mean that we can't reach God. The Trinity is involved in our lives. The Trinity is in communion with us. Triune God has invited us into communion with himself, and how amazing and wonderful is that? The God who created the heavens and the earth has provided a way for us to be in communion with him through the blood of Christ and the seal of the Holy Spirit. And one of the ways that we can be in communion with the triune God is by engaging in and living out the great commission that Christ gave us. When we are initiated into the kingdom of God through baptism, we are baptized in the name of the triune God. We belong to the triune God and we must daily submit ourselves to his lordship by living out the commands that he gave us. But thanks be to God that he doesn't expect us to live out the life of discipleship on our own. Instead, God the Father and God the Son sent and sealed us with the Holy Spirit to convict us of our sin and our need for Christ and to seal us and sanctify us for the glory of God. 
The Holy Spirit helps us grow in holiness. God has not abandoned us. Through baptism, we belong to God alone. And God helps us to grow in holiness for his glory and draws us into deeper relationship with himself. In regard to discipleship, it's not enough to simply convert people and fill the pews and say, all right, check, we, we, we got the folks, we're good. I said the right thing, I'm kind of doing the right thing, we're good to go. God desires more than just numbers. God desires more than just a single profession of faith and then going on and doing whatever you want. God desires disciples that are in real relationship with him and live transformed lives for his glory alone. Every single one of us are called to make disciples, and you don't have to go be a missionary in some foreign country. You can make disciples in your own backyard, in your own community, in your own homes. Because even these people, even those people that you are around all the time, they are included in the nations, and they'll go and make disciples of all nations. There are so many different ways that we can disciple people. We can disciple people through direct teaching and through conversations, intentional conversations that you have with people. Throughout my life, I've had really wonderful mentors in college and seminary and in my family. And even here at this church, I've had some wonderful mentors who have encouraged and called out and drawn me into deeper relationship with God. But you can also make disciples by the way that you live. When you are in community with people, whether that be in your household, in your neighborhood, at your job, in the church, people watch at the things people watch the things you do. They're looking, they're watching. And when they see something different, when they see you acting a certain way and ask you, why are you doing that? That gives you the perfect opportunity to tell them, because God first loved me. Because I'm made in the image of God, I'm his child. And you are also made in the image of God and dearly loved by him. Won't you come and know Christ and walk alongside me and we can journey together? People notice when you live a transformed life of discipleship by the power of the Holy Spirit. So disciple people through word and deed, just as Christ did with his own disciples. He discipled them through word and deed and living with them and walking alongside them. Brothers and sisters, in our Wesleyan tradition, baptism is the sacrament that initiates us into covenant community with God and God's people. And holy communion is the sacrament that sustains and nourishes us. At God's table, table, we not only remember what God did for us, we also get to experience the real presence of Christ because we believe that the real presence of Christ is at this table. This is not just baptized people's table. This is not a Methodist table. This is not Georgetown First table. This is God's table. And the real presence of Christ is here. And we all come as equals to this table knowing that we are all in need of the forgiveness and grace that God offers us. And so this table is open to all who earnestly seek Christ and desire to be in relationship with him. And so church, I invite you to come and experience the risen and sovereign Lord at the table.
Will you pray with me? Almighty God, we thank you for walking alongside us. We thank you for your forgiveness and your grace. Lord, please help us to grow in holiness and live transformed lives of discipleship. Help us to live out the Great Commission and experience you daily. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God the Father Almighty. Amen.